Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Coming up on today's episode, Cathy Sheridan will be joined by Cloda O'Hagan, who's decided to have a baby on her own at the age of 43. And we're going to be hearing all about her journey so far. But first, Kitty Holland wrote very movingly about a food stall that's out there three nights a week in Dublin city centre giving food to homeless people. So I wanted to get her in to talk about that article and about the issue of homelessness, which is so visible on our streets at the moment. Kitty, you had a very important story in the Irish Times this week and you kind of gave us a glimpse of something that people notice on the streets but don't see, I think, closely enough into. So so tell us about you what you saw when you went to talk to some of the people who are getting their food from these places on the streets of Dublin. Um, yes, yeah, so I was on Sunday evening to the Feed Our Homeless charity. They have a sort of a, a stall or soup kitchen, I suppose you'd call it, um, outside the Bank of Ireland or College Green um, three nights a week. Um, and I mean, they were, there was a queue before they'd even sort of started serving and they serve hot meal and they serve um, tea, coffee, chocolate bars and they do takeaway sandwiches as well and crisps and things like that. Um, I suppose it was the, the, the most heartbreaking really um, was we was the children and the and the older people, particularly one older woman who was um, she didn't want to talk to me, but she I mean, she was about eight. She told me she was 80. She was 80. And she, the one of the volunteers sort of took her aside so she wouldn't have to get into the queue, which was, um, wasn't troublesome or anything, but it was, you know, it was energetic. It was people in their 30s chatting and, you know, um, and she was, looked very delicate. So she um, was there. I don't, I don't know what her situation was. She just told me she was, she was from the South side and didn't want to talk. Um, and then there were um, a few families with children. Um, there was one family in particular who spoke quite happily to me actually about their situation and were happy to be photographed. Um, a Romanian couple, not Roma, but from Romania. Um, and they had come to Ireland two years ago. Uh, they had a little child, age two, a boy. And um, I suppose they're just in the situation that an awful lot of people are in, which is that kind of real hid- hidden poverty, really. Um, that they are sharing a house with 10 other people um, paying €900 Euro for, they said, one of the bigger rooms in the house. Um, and he, the, the father, the husband, is a kitchen porter bringing in, sort of, he said, between 1800 and 2000 a month, which leaves them with very little money. And they, to save, they sometimes come to these food stalls and um, and feed the child. I mean, that really jumped out at me. I know that the, this is happening all over the city and probably in other cities, but like, thousand euro a month one room with 10 other people in the house and you think of the person who owns that property and what they must be making making and yeah. it just seems so like mercenary I don't know it's just awful 
Well, and I suppose that's the way the rental market has gone, you know, that there are so many people who are just hanging in there, trying to keep a roof over over their heads. And obviously for all of us, the priority is the rent or the mortgage. That's the first thing that is paid without question every month. You've got to have a roof over your head. You've got to have stability for the kids. Um, And then you consider everything else. Um, So, yeah, I mean, yeah, terrible. But I mean, when you look at the rents now in Dublin, you know, for a three bedroom house, if you're if you do have a family, you're going to be looking at 2000 euro. I couldn't afford that if I was renting. I thank God every day I have a mortgage, you know. Um, so, the, you know, there is this just, I suppose, in, increasing inequality really is what you would say, you know, and that's we're seeing it now with these uh, food stalls. They're all over. There's about three of them in the Dublin city centre every every night. Mm-hmm. There's one outside the GPO. There's one there on College Green, and there's one usually up on Grafton Street as well. Yeah, I see sometimes walking down Grafton Street, and there's one they give out kind of pizzas and things. Yeah, maybe. there's also then, but the basic, there's there's business for them. Uh, business is a wrong word to use, but there's an audience for them. Every uh, every night of the week, it seems every night, like every night. But the yeah. demand is there. Yeah, I mean, this one is there three nights a week, but there's another group who are there um, two other nights, and then I suppose there's two nights when there's when there's no one there at College Green. But it's uh, yeah, nearly every night there's people queuing up to get um, free food. And we have an election going on. Do you think those issues are you know are the way people are going to vote down the lines of? Are people exercised about it? Because someone said to me on Twitter when I tweeted your article about the fact that we're kind of not shocked anymore. And that's what's shocking, really. Yeah. And that would make you worry that people have just become complacent. Well, I think I think I do think people are upset about it. I think you know, I'm working in seeing it all the time, and I sort of make an assumption sometimes that people are kind of not noticing it. I'm noticing it because it's my job. But then when you um, talk to people, they are they are upset about the homelessness. They are upset about families in hotels. They are upset to see people queuing for food. Um, and I mean, one one of the people I talked to with this was actually um, a man in his fifties, and to, in some ways he upset me the most because he was he he. It started off that he had an argument with someone else in the queue because he took a chocolate bar before and a bit of a scuffle broke out. Right. And one of the volunteers then took him aside and said, "Look, you're you're welcome to you're welcome to food, but you have to queue up." And he just broke down in tears. And he was a man in his 50s from County Offaly and he said that he had lost his um, rental accommodation two years ago because there was damp in the apartment and his landlady couldn't let it out anymore. So he became homeless and as a result he lost his job and he's now been over a year sleeping in the Phoenix Park and he just was in tears saying, I just can't take it anymore, I just can't take it anymore. And I think there's so much of that hidden desperation and... Um, yeah, devastation out there that we just um, are are aware of, and I do think people are upset and angry about it. I, I, I think I, when the election was called, I thought, oh, Fine Gael's going to do quite well in this election because the economy's better than it was five years ago, four or five years ago. Um, but I've been, and uh, maybe I'm showing my political colours here, but certainly my, my views, my views on the on social justice. Anyway, I'm yeah. heartened that. Fine Gael is taking a bit of a um, is 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 struggling a bit because I think that is a reflection that people are saying. Do you know what? It's not good enough. The fact that the economy is doing well, but some people are doing fabulously out of it, and increasing numbers are doing really badly. And I think that's the inequality that we're seeing. You wouldn't have 
10, 15 years ago, all these food stalls and all this homelessness on, on the streets. And at the same time, I don't think you would have had 10, 15 years ago, the amount of people who are doing so bloody well. Mm. The fabulous houses you see around Dublin, the huge cars, the private schools booming, all that. Kind of, and I just, I think that there's a disparity that is growing and people are beginning between climate change and growing inequality are are getting angry and I think that's a good thing. Do you think that accounts for the sort of rise in popularity of Sinn Féin that seems to be happening? Is that where you would... Yeah, I, I would. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm wouldn't be a you know my job's not to be a political pundit, but I do feel that um, that there is, um, yeah, there's an, an anger with the way the, the Fine Gael um, led government has has overseen a kind of um, the housing crisis. I mean, they have had five years. The housing crisis has been going on for since 2014, arguably six years, and they have not got on more than they have, they haven't got on top of it. Top of it, it's got worse. So I think people are looking and going, this isn't really working. Um, the economy on paper is doing well, but society's not doing well. But um, from Micheál Martin or Leo Adker, it doesn't seem to be a priority for them to address this, that we're going to tackle homes. That doesn't seem to be a message coming out as much. Well, I mean, they say they're going to. Mm. And they um, sort of argue that they're going to, you know, that housing is at the top of the top of the agenda. But, yeah, I think it's going to be more of the same, which is a reliance on the private market, which, um, you know, to pr- provide social homes in the private rented market um, and a re- reliance on the private developers to deliver social homes and that's not where the profits are. That's not where people who want to make big money are going to invest their time and energy in providing homes for people at the lower end of the housing market. So, I mean, it really does need a massive state intervention. And um, I want to say I'm not a Sinn Féin member or anything like that, but I do think their message is resonating on housing. Um, I think Owen O'Brien is very impressive on it. Mm. Uh, I think he's probably one. It's interesting too that they're most popular between the 18 and 34 age group because I think people an older cohort have a bit of baggage when it comes mm. to Sinn Féin and they have, you know, this idea I never will vote for them because of, you know, connotations with the IRA and all yeah. this historical stuff. But I think younger people coming up don't have those um, same... Yeah, well, I suppose they didn't, you know, they didn't live through the troubles and they didn't live through the kind of um, hostility to Sinn Féin that was, you know, so virulent through the troubles. Um, yeah, so I, th- I think... The, yeah, younger people coming up are, but they're also younger people are more exercised by these issues, you know. They're, um, and that's where a lot of people are voting green as well, and um, and where I suppose people, um, the parties further left, are kind of trying to get in on as well the kind of green. I mean, they're good on it. Breed Smith has been fantastic on the environment and climate change as well. But um, the the parties that seem to be really capitalising are Sinn Fein and the Greens. Well, I suppose you'll be keeping an eye as part of your job, which is your job, um, on those social issues. And are there any other um, aspects of Irish society that you're particularly looking at at the moment and think that's not been enough done about? Well, I think childcare is is, is a big one. I mean, childcare is obviously an issue that affects families for a, for a limited period of time and then they move on and they don't need the childcare anymore. But... Um, I, you know, it's 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 a perennial issue that is um, not being tackled. I mean, there's there there is a new childcare scheme, but again, it's reliant on private providers to provide the childcare, which you which leads to high prices, low pay for staff. Um, um, you know, 
sometimes unreliable levels of standards. Um, so, I mean, childcare. But Catherine Zappone, who's the outgoing Minister for Children, has said herself that she feels that we need more nationally provided, state provided, local authority provided childcare, and she would like to see that. Um, I, do, I do think that that's something that is going to become calls for that are going to get louder. Okay, Kitty Holland, thank you very much. Now, just over a year ago, Cloda O'Hagan decided that she wanted to have a baby on her own and she decided to go down the road of sperm donor insemination. Despite being given just 5% chance of success, we're really happy to say that Cloda is now over 20 weeks pregnant with her first child, who's going to be a little baby boy due in May. And she spoke to Cathy about the whole process, from the mental and physical preparation beforehand, the sperm donor selection, the injections and hospital visits. She really is an inspiration for anyone else thinking of going it alone. And I know that there are increasing numbers of women who make that decision. So here she is, talking to Cathy Sheridan, Cloda O'Hagan. Cloda, you're just over 20 weeks pregnant. How are you feeling? I feel great. I have to say, I'm so I'm so lucky, 21 weeks in, absolutely flying it. Um, haven't had any real morning sickness or anything like that. Um, I, at, towards the beginning, I was nauseous and a bit tired, but sure, I love a nap. Any excuse to have a little lie down. So it's grand, it's great. Now, Claudia, there is a difference to your story. A little uh, one. <laughs> yes, a little one. You decided to go it alone. I did. Tell us about that. So... I was never, I don't think any girl, you know, grows up dreaming about having a baby on their own. (laughs) They think about it in a different way. Um, But I suppose um, as I was going through my 30s and I was in relationships and, you know, they didn't work out or they came to a natural end, I started to, um, the want for a baby grew as I kind of got a bit older. Um, And I suppose you start to get a little bit panicked. What am I going to do? And I had started thinking about, you know, alternative options and um, had considered going it alone, but it was something that was much further down the line. But I had started to put things in place because I had previously lived in big rented houses in town and gorgeous houses and sublet them and house shared for years. And I was like, well, this isn't really conducive to if I do decide to go it alone in a few years. So I moved out to Dublin 12, bought a two bedroom house. And I was like, "Okay, we're kind of set now. We can take the pressure off because should I have to do it, I'm kind of set up for it. And I went about my life still with the hope that I would find the one, you know, to make a baby with that you want to live with. Um, And that was that. And we were happy out. And then a year and a half ago, I was on holidays in Croatia and I was having a lovely time. And I got a call from um, a doctor from the local surgery just with um, run of the mill um, blood test results. And as we were going through it, she was very nice and everything was fine. And when I got to my phosphorus levels, she had said, oh, well, that's quite low, but that's fine because you're not, you know, trying to have a baby. And I was like, yeah, no, I'm not at the moment. But, you know, in a year, a year and a half, I will be either with somebody or on my own, kind of quite nonchalantly. And her response was quite sobering. She was like, oh, no, honey, you know, if you're going to have a baby, you know, it's really something you should think about now. Because what age were you then? I was 41. Yes. And a half. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And uh, the half is very important to me when it comes to these years. (laughs) They go by so quick. Um, But she she basically, like, based on your age and everything, she, I suppose, and that was before doing any further tests, she's like, you know, for, for most people, it can take a year, a year and a half if all goes well, you know, to have a baby. 
Um, so you'd be 43 at that time, which is actually correct, as it turns out. She goes, but if you wait that amount of time, you're going to be 43. Your fertility is going to have depleted more. You know, it will be harder to do it then. Um, it may not happen. If it does happen, you know, you could be 45, 46. Do you want to be that age, you know, for your, to consider having your first baby? And while I have been always kind of putting it on the long finger with my backup plan to, like, keep me sane... I suppose when someone said it quite so frankly, no, she was lovely, thankfully, because it was quite upsetting at the same time. Um, it was an easy decision to make. So there was a few tears on the beach, but I suppose I looked at it in two ways. I made the decision then and there. I was like, OK, I'm just going to go for it. And in some ways it was a relief. I was like, I can stop thinking about it and worrying about, am I going to meet somebody? When am I going to, when am I going to start it? So from that perspective, it was almost a relief. As in, I made the decision now. I'm just going to get on with it. And then there's the other side of it. So, you know, which was a grieving process because you are accepting. You're like, I'm not going to have met that person and I am doing it alone. And that bit is upsetting. And it it it's a, takes a while to get used to because it's it's. I don't think it's anybody's first choice. Um, so that's where it stood. So that kind of it was a bittersweet moment. But that kind of set the journey off from there. And did you go and announce this to people? Well, I was on holiday. So there was a couple of us there and I did say it then and there. And I'd say a little drink was taken to celebrate. <laughs> to celebrate? <laughs> well, just Nobody looked alarmed or thought, oh my God, how are you going to do this? No. So when I came home, um, first of all, I think, you know, an extended in extended um, friends and family and groups, you know, I have no people who are in relationships who've had um, donor egg babies, you know, with their partner. And for, um, my my circle, my network is, is very open-minded in general. And people would have been very aware of the fact that I wanted to have a baby. Um, and I think in the last few years, almost that want made it more difficult to meet somebody because if you're so... You're, you're older, you know what you want and you've almost made mistakes where you might have considered having a baby with someone before and gone, oh my God, if I'd done that, it would have been the worst thing ever. So you're going into it and you're like immediately sizing people up going, is this my baby daddy? And that's no pressure for anybody, for you or them. You can't give people a chance. They can't live up to any expectation. So it was almost, you know, kind of like a barrier there anyway. So people were just delighted when I made the decision and... My mom had said 10 years before to a friend of mine, when Clodagh wants to have a baby, she'll have a baby, which she was probably knew me better than I knew myself. But the first thing I did was my family were delighted. My sister was like, and they were like, OK, I realised then that they'd been keeping baby items in presses that nobody had ever mentioned to me. And I, the first thing I did was ask my mom, who lives in Donegal, would she come down and stay with me for the first two or three months you know, watch me. Am I doing it right? Do you know, this is before you embarked on anything. This is the first thing. I'm very organised. I'm very this pragmatic. Extraordinary. <laughs> I'm like, what do I need to make this happen? So knowing my mom would do that immediately took away a lot of fear around it. And I suppose over over the years, conversations of like lots of my friends have babies, and you know, my your fears of doing it alone around isolation, financial worries. My sister's baby had reflux and she didn't sleep for two years and put the total frighteners on me. Um, but all of the things I feared I would experience, people in couples experience that with people. So the bad things 
or not, the challenging things, should I say, aren't unique to me just because I'm doing it on my own. And I suppose I'm a very resourceful person. So I'm confident that I'll figure out a support network or solutions that will facilitate my life. So even as I started to go through the process where I was living, I was considering extending the house. And then I really thought about where it was and all the rest of it. And I actually, within a day, put the house up on the market to move house because I'm moving out to the suburbs because it's closer to amenities. What do I need day to day? Well, that brings me 20 minutes walk to the to the beach. There's loads of lovely parks around it. There's loads of facilities. So I just turned my everything off that I'm not going to be going into town. I'm going to be close to all the amenities and that'll make life easier. So we've done that. And so this is extraordinary <laughs> because at this point you were going a particular route yes. towards getting pregnant. Yes. Now, Tell this it. was when I'd started the treatment. You sold the house when you'd started the treatment? When I was in the process of the treatment, I started it really May, April, March, April this year. So when I started it, that was when I decided, OK, let's think about the best place to live and put the house on the market and that's sold and I should be due to move into the house the end of March and begin. Now, end of February. I think in view of your extraordinary optimism, it's important to look at the method you you are using and the percentage success that it gets. Yes. Tell us about that. So when I went, finally got to, I did bits and bobs of um, tests beforehand. And if anybody is thinking of, the one thing I'd say, if anybody is thinking about the process, whether it's now or later down the line, just go to a clinic and get your fertility MOT done and just get all just get the read on where you are and it can help to take the pressure off I imagine if you just have the big picture whereas I did things piecemeal and I had a false sense of security because of initial tests and I actually was maybe a tiny bit complacent thinking it would be way easier than I originally thought and then when I went to the fertility clinic and I got the stark facts I was absolutely devastated because for my age eggs hormones all of the bits the chances of straightforward IUI working was a 2% chance of working and then I subsequently checked in other clinics and the world averages 2.2% chance of success. If you change that to follically assisted IUI, it went up to 2 to 5% and if you change that to IVF, it was a 7% chance of, of success. And I was looking at those figures, I was like, none of them are great. So um, I had a very, a very hard Christmas was very, it was a very difficult few weeks. There was a lot of tears. This is when you started the treatment. This is just when I heard the stats. I hadn't, I hadn't started it yet, but that was when, you know, why didn't I start it sooner? I never knew that. I never knew how much fertility dropped at 40 and how quickly it dropped after that. You're aware of it, but you're also in your mind, you're like, people are having babies older, so it can be done. So you don't really think about how difficult it would be. And you don't know how low the chances of success are because all we see are the successes. Yeah. We don't see a lot of, of, we don't see many people, Claudia, who have tried and tried. We might hear about them through our friendship groups. Yeah. But they're not out there talking about it. No, they're not. And, kind of skipping forward a bit so part of the treatment I try I started the treatment twice but didn't Which treatment treatment did you choose? I decided I went with um, follically assisted IUI which is basically um, treatment to get the follicle as in the best optimum condition that it can be and 
scanning to make to monitor what that is and then timing the procedure exactly so that your insemination is done, you know, you, 36 hours before it triggers, your insemination is done and it's literally sitting there waiting for the egg to ovulate. And so for 24 hours, I just basically had my um, look who's talking moment and visualised a party in my womb and them all dancing and getting together for 24 hours. <laughs> and that got me through that 24 hours. Um, but... When one of the times that I did it and it just the follicles collapsed, you know, the day before I was supposed to, let's say, go in for the treatment, I was again, that was probably my second lowest time in terms of how upset I was. But a friend of mine from work, you know, she did say to me, she has a big group of network of female friends and there's so many people who have fertility issues. And she said, you know, they all had their challenges and every one of them was different, but she said she had, but every one of them had their baby now. So science is a beautiful thing. It can take there's it can be very challenging, but that helped to really reassure me that if it wasn't this, you know, something would help me get there. Not that I thought too far in the distance, but I, I found that very comforting. Now we've skipped a step, yes. which is apart from <laughs> moving house twice, yeah. <laughs> ringing your mother, yeah. saying, Are you available yeah. for three months sometime? Yeah. Um the point at which you physically prepared yourself, you went to therapy. So that was for your psychological well-being and to, de- and, and to determine yeah. how fit you were for this, but also physically. Yes. So when I had my little, I let myself have the moment over Christmas. I booked, I had been previously on a boot camp and I find them amazing. So I booked myself into a boot camp over New Year's time. It's a week-long boot camp in the UK and, you know, you're you're doing like four high-intensity classes a day Um and you're really kind of pushing yourself. And I suppose I got a lot out of that because what I was achieving in that, like there was, I cried a few times during that at my personal achievements through it. And it really helped me feel physically and emotionally strong when I came back. So when I came back, I had a plan in place. This is what I'm going to do. And for the next 12 months, I'm going to mind myself and I'm going to throw everything at it. So, you know, I, I did Reiki, I did acupuncture, I did therapy, I, the therapy sessions, Claude, are mandatory. There's only one therapy session that's mandatory from the clinic perspective. And that's, I suppose, for, from their perspective to sense check, you understand it's an impact and something test. So you understand what you're participating in. You understand the impact and you're emotionally able for it. And it's more of a sense check. And they do provide kind of monthly um, free group therapy sessions um, what they did at the clinic I went to. I didn't actually go to any of them. But I suppose for me, it was more of a journey in the run up to that. Like it's probably a three, four year journey of, you know, identifying when you want to have a baby, what you're going to go about and working through um, the challenges. So by the time, you know, like I mentioned about the isolation, the financial security and all that. So I had done a lot of the thinking work on it before it was put in front of me and I started it. So while while the conditions were challenging, more challenging than I perceived them to be. Um, I had worked through a lot of that in my mind. Now, what I will say is from when I made the decision in the summer to Christmas, when I still maybe had hesitations or concerns about my fears, in when I got the results of the tests and the minute that you're told that you actually think it might not happen, well, all of those concerns go out the window and you're like, OK, Whatever about that, yes. they're they're small fry. You know, yeah. we can figure all that out, but we just have to Suddenly get to the you have point. A single now. focus, exactly. The Irish Times Women's Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, sumptuously smooth dark chocolate.
So you chose this particular form of treatment with a what, the 5% chance? 2 to 5%. 2 to 5%. And my reason for choosing that was it was relatively it was relatively financially affordable, quite cheap in comparison, let's say, to IVF. How cheap, Loda? So for the actual treatments per go, it was like €750. Euros. Your donor, sperm on top of that. I went for two goes of it, for want of a better word, top shelf. That was two and a half grand. So, you know, and all in all, from the amount of times I stopped and started the treatment, probably only cost me five grand, which was relatively cheap for the, the outcome. IVF, I suppose, starts at a minimum of 7,000 plus. But for me, there was only a 2% greater chance of that working. Whereas the research and stuff that I had done, um, a donor a donor egg and donor sperm IVF, the chances greatly increase. And it's approximately the same price as IVF and why you do that abroad. So for me, looking at it from a personal perspective, a financial perspective, and also time, because I was like, I've got 12 months, 12 months I'm older again. I was like, we'll try this one. We'll give it a go. It's relatively easy. And if it doesn't work, we'll go straight to the one that has the highest percentage chance of working. So that was my game plan. And so I, I, I kicked it off. And I was beyond incredibly lucky in that it actually was successful the first time I completed the treatment. At what point did you choose the donor? In Before you do anything. Before you start the treatment, because it needs to be in Ireland contained, on ice, ready to go. So that was the first main step. And it's like a giant database. It's like online dating in a weird sense. And you have all of the different criteria there. You like um, ethnicity, height, um, hair colour, eye colour, which sounds maybe shallow, but when you're thinking about what your baby might look like, you want to try and ensure it's as close to looking like you as possible because you're not going to have the person beside you to go, oh, he's cut out of his dad, (laughs) you know. So I went for dark hair and blue eyes. And then my next priority was um, the genetic health line. So you can see to the grandparents and there was no cancer, no heart disease, you know, no early anything. So that was another significant box to tick for me. Then there's just the notes that's written by the interviewer of the person who meets the donor. And I can't remember the detail and I'm, I kind of question, should I read it or not again at this stage? But I just really like the sound of him. He sounded like a lovely guy. And then, you know, there's an, it's, I chose a non-anonymous donor so that at age 18, my child can contact him and he's happy for my child to contact him. So should, should he wish to? Um, and so, and his note for his reasons why he did this was lovely and he had his own child and it was just a very lovely altruistic approach. So they were the the factors that helped me. Uh, can I ask you a question, Clodagh, which might occur to some people? Yeah. <laughs> um, is there a chance of you bumping into him? No, it's not or Irish. Or the child bumping into him? No, no. no. And you, you, you wouldn't be able to choose from... Ireland because, it, you know, from a, a health perspective and the gene pool. So, you know, majority of people in Ireland who pay for donor sperm, it's, it's Sweden, it's Denmark, maybe America. But um, from a governance perspective, you wouldn't be able to buy from Ireland. And two things are interesting about this, apart of the, the, the cosmetic thing, which is you can see a picture of the donor yeah. up to the age of four. Yes. 
uh, but not after that. So no. you, you wouldn't recognise him if you saw him at a no. railway station. Or but something. you kind of look and go, because I suppose if you think about, I'm obviously a woman, if I had a girl, you know, you would be seeing similar similar attributes. But you kind of look at it and, and, and go, that's, if you have a little boy, that's what your little baby boy might look like. Um, and... As of Saturday, it was my birthday and I went for dinner with my pals. And when I cut my birthday cake, we all found out I'm having a boy. <laughs> there was a gender reveal party. Yeah, yeah just a birthday cake. Um, there is a hierarchy of payment for this. You can, you can find out, you can get more information by paying more money. Is that right? You can do. I didn't want to know any more information. That's enough for me. Yeah. You know. You wanted, did you pay for better motility? So what you, I think when I went through, yes. So when I was looking at different costs, that's what I, I, I reckoned to be, you know, an increased M cost because obviously higher potency, higher chance of success. So this is a huge moment, obviously. Yeah. Were you on your own when you picked the, when you, when you picked the donor? So <laughs> initially, um, <laughs> I, when I first went onto the site and I went to log into it, I was like, oh my God, it was so daunting. I was like, what am I going to do? But I like, I like to create memories. Do you know what I mean? If you're going to do it, do it in your own style. So I invited a few friends over just for the evening, just to call over. And I didn't say why beforehand. And then I had my friend... Um, design up bunting and when they arrived I had sperm palooza bunting hanging in my living room <laughs> sperm palooza yeah sure we had a ball <laughs> and um, I didn't actually we, we did do some selection process there and I, that wasn't what I went with but it just helped to break down the barrier and the, the fear around it and the dauntingness around it and sure once we'd done it then and like anything I'm like Oh, yeah, I want everyone's opinion. Whatever, this is what I think, <laughs> you know. And did something um, in particular tip you towards that particular donor? Was there one thing that we had thought? I just him? I just liked the sound of who he was. And I remember that was that was the feeling of when I read the um, the personal notes that the interviewer wrote about him. It just sounded like a nice human. Right. So we now have everything in place. Yeah. You are an extraordinarily organised woman by the sound of it. I'm dying to hear what you do for a living. Um, so everything is in place. You have you've lined up the donor. Yeah. Um, and what happens next? You've chosen your MO, the, 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 your modus operandi to, yeah. to accomplish this. So you start, um, you... When you're, you're, you're monitoring your cycle. Um, on the first day of your cycle, you let the clinic know. You go in for a scan the next day, which is your base test. And it's just to see how your ovaries are performing. So if they're overactive or understimulating, you might not proceed with it. Um, and once they're happy with it, well, then you start your treatment. So for me, you take your first injection, which is to grow the follicle. And after approximately seven days, you introduce a second injection in the morning time, which is to prevent ovulation so that the first in, for, so the first injection can continue to let the follicle grow. And as this is happening, um, you're monitored, you know, um, regularly with internal scans to look at the size of the follicles. And what they're looking for is for it to get to the optimum size before they continue with um the procedure and you know just from a health a health perspective, you know, what they're what they're looking for is um one maximum two of the perfectly sized follicles. If you had too many of them, they wouldn't do it because for risk of multiple births or whatnot. When it gets to the right size, 
you take your trigger injection at midnight, which starts the process of ovulation. 36 hours you go into the clinic for your insemination and then you just wait for 16 days. It sounds like a full-time job, Claudia. It was. <laughs> was it? Yeah, and I'm, I'm very lucky in that my friends are very supportive, but um, I work in a small team. My team, you know, were aware and fully supportive of me. So I, I never had to worry about, um, I never had to worry about making an appointment, being late. If I felt particularly tired, I could work from home. If I was, if something went wrong and I was particularly emotional, let's say one of the times when it did go wrong and I went into work to see everyone, I was like, go home. Get yourself to bed. So that was amazing. I was really lucky in that every everything was cushioning me and supporting me of what I needed throughout the process of it. And, you know, it started probably in April, but it wasn't until September that it actually worked because I went through it twice, didn't complete it. Then I took a two-month break because I was so aware that it might take a long time. It could be very hard, and I really wanted joyous memories not so far behind to be able to get me through what may take a long time and as it happened it, it was successful just straight after that. And just to be clear it is the turkey basting method. Yes. So it's actually unbelievably simple. Yes. But in the meantime you're injecting yourself Cloda and is that is that what are you injecting yourself with? Is, is that hormonal and is that I presume it is. Yeah um I can't remember the names of them. Is that mood shifting? I mean, is that tough? I didn't find it terribly tough. It was maybe tiring. I think the IVF process is a lot harder on the system. Um, So beyond a bit of tiredness, I I didn't find it terribly challenging. So your first time it didn't work. What was first time? First time. It was my own fault. I confused the injections and I got it wrong. <laughs> and then there was loads of tears. I can't believe this. I know. For I an organised woman. I know. Well, yeah. my friend, my friend was playing her first gig in Vicar Street. And I may have taken a drink. <laughs> right. I, but I think in the power of the gods, it wasn't meant to happen that time because it was after that that I decided to sell my house and move. So it's all as it should be. And then the second time was when there was maybe two two follicles and they the question had been, do you, how do you feel about a multiple birth? And I was like, oh, yeah, okay, okay. And uh, at the time I was like, sure, like I'd never have to go again. And that's when they collapsed and it didn't work and it was very exciting. And as much as, you know, it would be a blessing and you would you would have a pal for, it, for each other, the reality is if I had to, well, I'd never get out of the house again. And sure, look, like we want a baby and all, but we still want a life. Your mother might have stayed in Donegal. Exactly. Um, so I started the treatment twice, but I only actually completed the treatment once and it, wor- and it worked that one time. That is incredible. It is. And I'm so... You're the 2 to 5% even, person. Yeah. And I couldn't even think... I And even my friends, like, they're all talking, they're like, can you believe it? Can you actually be... Of course, course you did, of course you did. And none of us could even verbalise it for the first few months because you're like, you know, is it still there? And you're afraid if you acknowledge how amazing and beyond that it was to have worked that, you know, you're going to tempt fate. So we just kind of, none of us talked about it for a few months. But you're going to scans with your heart and your mouth. Yeah. And yes. Yeah. But you're now 20 weeks, which yeah. is a brilliant stage yeah. to be at. a big scan tomorrow. Oh, the big scan yeah. is tomorrow. Okay. Well, you're... Glowing, I can't. <laughs> with fingers crossed in every possible way. So, you've thought, I presume, you've thought ahead, Cloda, in terms of the years to come. This baby growing up, uh, 
Will you tell the child fairly early on about his origins? Because um, it is a boy. Because it is a boy, yeah. Um, I don't exactly know how I, I will tell him or what I'll do, but I just, that's something I need to figure out. I suppose one of the reasons why we're here and we're having the chat is because it's normalising the situation. And one thing I know from doing this is the amount of other people who are considering it, who have done it, you know, who've messaged me and have, you know, taken a lot from my story and have said they're sending the link on to their parents because it helps normalise it. So one would think or one would hope by the time I'm having that conversation, it won't be such. And I don't think it's a big deal. I don't think there's a stigma around it. I just think there's not much maybe chat about it. So it's, it just hasn't been normalised yet. So I don't think there's there's negative connotations. I just think we're we're Irish and we're proud. And, you know, there's not that much chat about it, but I think that will probably change because everyone I know knows someone who knows someone who knows someone. So by the time I'm having that chat, it hopefully it won't be such a big, significant chat. And I suppose every child is different and you can only base it on what you feel are the needs of your own child when you, you see who they are and what its personality is and, and take from there. I definitely don't have all the answers. Yeah. I have to learn how to Does do a nappy properly is, first. Yes. You know what I mean? But is, gonna, is, is there a template for that that you're no. seeing? Nobody says, here's no. how you do this. No, there isn't. And it's one of the things that they do reference, you know, in the official counselling. And I suppose I'm like, you don't know what um, um, support services will be available at that time. So when it gets to that time, I'll check everything out and I'll see. But I have a bit of time on that. But I know I will be open on it, about it. Well, sure, I'd have to be. You would. <laughs> because, because you've already shared yeah. the story on social yeah. media. Yeah, exactly. And I presume, hopefully, the response was was, oh, it was just undilutedly positive. Wonderful. And not one, not one piece of negativity, just wonderful. And if you were to give advice to other women... Because one of the things we hear is that people become so focused on this that it becomes impossible to mm. stop. Mm. Um, would you have gone on trying after the third? So I gave myself two two shots here in because that's what I had the donor sperm for. And I would have gone on. I don't know. What I'd said to myself was don't think about it. Give it the year and regroup at the end of the year because you can just paralyze yourself with the fear. And I think, so while I love talking to people, I'm happy to talk to anybody. When I was going through the process, I didn't want to talk to anybody else because I know I can see the stats there. They're not great. What else are you going to tell me? It either worked for you or it didn't. That's got no impact on what's going to happen to me. So I just focused on anything that I thought would support what I was trying to do and then I would regroup at the end of it and see then. And Claudia, do you feel there is, I mean, you you are so positive and so organised. So, and there's something about you that people want to help you and will be delighted for you and celebrate with you. Oh, but do you think you. it's, do you think it's, 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 um, it is possible to go alone, to go it alone? People have been going it alone for years. I grew up in a single family and my mom raised three kids, you know, from when I was a baby. Just because you're choosing to do it alone, people are doing it every day. And I think if you choose to go it alone, you're probably better set up because 
you're thinking about it in in that guise. So, you know, I'm I am really lucky. I work in Vodafone and we have a really flexible structure of working. We have amazing, you know, maternity benefits and everything. I've thought through everything through to the child the crash is sorted, the hours that I'll work, you know, because I think if you deliberately go into something, you have to have thought through those elements. Whereas lots of people are single parents and they haven't had the luxury to have thought through that in advance. They're like everything. You're just going to wing it when it happens. But you are, I think, in essence, more prepared for solo parenting than people who end up being single parents, not by choice, because you have thought about it and how you're going to manage it and support it. Last question, Clodagh. We're here to actually celebrate, which is wonderful, um, and also to normalise. And I think one of your experiences in the matter was that the doctor there kept referring to you and your partner. Now, was that just irritating or is it something you think should stop or do you feel strongly about it? It was like I understand. I understand how it happened. So, you know, because the when I was in the matter, the particular procedure was an internal x-ray that most women would only go for if they've been trying for a long time and to see what the blockages are, whereas it was getting ahead of it. So I totally understand, you know, why why it happened. Um, but I think, you know, there will be no harm to have a box in terms of ticking on it, you know, to say if somebody is doing it on their own. But, you know, I think for me, the realities of that happening is like the number of people doing it is still very small in terms of the masses. So for me, I just try and get ahead of the story. So, you know, when I'm telling people I'm I'm pregnant, it's like, oh, I'm having a baby. Just me, myself and I. It's brilliant. And then they might be a bit shocked. I don't know what to say, but they're going to ask someone else before they come back to you. And it stops them asking a question that they're awkward about. And it's done, you know, and that's how I will manage it. Well, Claude, I think you should go around giving talks <laughs> around this entire country and Europe even because you really are a fantastic <laughs> model for Thanks this. So much. And we can't wait to see how the months progress. Oh, thank and you. And can't wait to see this boy. Listen, thanks so much for coming in <laughs> thank to you. talk I've to the Women's Podcast. <laughs> And that's it for today. Thanks to our guests, Clodagh O'Hagan and to Kitty Holland. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Acast and all good podcast apps. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or email us on the Women's Podcast at irishtimes.com. We're also going to be coming to Instagram soon, so do keep an eye out for that and we'll let you know the details when we have our account up and running. The Women's Podcast is produced by Roisin Ingle and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.